What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we are about to air my interview with Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis. Before we do that, today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Here on the planet today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. And with that, we're going to get right into the interview. Today on TPT, we are joined by Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis. Hal is an acclaimed energy policy advisor, and Justin is an award-winning reporter for the New York Times. Their new book, The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet, is releasing September 20th the day after this episode airs. Hal Harvey, Justin Gillis, welcome to the planet today. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start by taking us back a little bit. And I'm curious, what got each of you first interested in environmentalism and sustainability? Well, I was uh, signed up to, I registered for the draft when I turned 18. Uh, It was the time when Jimmy Carter was deploying military forces to the Middle East. And at the same time, I was working for a solar construction company. And it was such a contrast between what we were doing as a country and what was so easy to do in building new homes. And I just couldn't stand it. (laughs) So I became sort of a freak about finding energy solutions uh, that worked in the real world. And uh, that never let go. I could probably take you to the spot on the beach in uh, Fort Lauderdale where I was standing uh, in the early 1980s, probably about 1983, when uh, a scientist first explained to me that the ocean was rising. Uh, and I was sort of able to look north and south and see, you know, from that spot, thousands of condominiums, you know, hugging uh, the coastline of, uh, of Broward County, Florida. Uh, and sort of from that moment, I kind of wanted to know why and, and uh, y- you know, which takes you quickly into the whole topic of climate change, right? And, and, um, mm-hmm. uh, and what we're doing to the planet. So uh, my reporting career didn't always track that subject. I did a bunch of different subjects, including medical stuff. Uh, but I sort of kept circling back to the environment and, you know, kind of ended my reporting career uh, as the lead writer on climate for the time. Uh, and that's where I met Hal and that's where we decided to write a book together. Awesome. So that's a perfect segue into my next question. Uh, we mentioned earlier that your book, The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet is hitting bookshelves tomorrow. What was your goal in writing the book and what are some things that readers can expect to find out? 
I've always felt that the biggest shortage in our political economy was political bandwidth, political courage. And it, pretty rarely that uh, legislative bodies sit down and deal seriously with long-term problems. So when they do, it's just absolutely crucial that they focus on what matters. There's a lot of what I would call decorative ecology disguised as environmental policy in the world. And we can't afford that. Climate change is too big and too fast and there's no reverse gear. So it's our hope with the book that people focus on a relatively small number of things that make a huge difference rather than a large number of things that are trivial in consequence. Yeah, and I, I would say to that, um, a big part of our goal was we're trying to help people overcome this feeling of disempowerment that most people have, right? This is, people look at this problem and say, this is a really enormous problem, uh, which it is. Uh, I feel mm -hmm. so small, I feel so powerless, you know, what can I do about a problem like this? And there are answers to that question. Uh, and those answers uh, mostly do not involve, you know, how you sort your recycling bin or what's in your refrigerator, even though those are perfectly good things to do as well. But uh, the real answers are political. There's a political path here to sort of getting things done. And so what we're trying to show people in the book is, um, uh, there is a way, you know, and, and even though, no, you can't solve this whole problem. Nobody can, it's too big, but there are things you can do and here's how to engage it. Here, here are ways to, uh, to make a difference. And just to, uh, just, just to emphasize a point that Justin made, the path to success is pretty narrow, pretty fraught and pretty high speed. Mm -hmm. We can't afford too many false starts. We can't afford to lag around. We can't afford to chase rabbits. We have to go after big game here. And so it's our hope that the people who read this book are not only inspired to action, but choose pathways that are gonna make a serious difference. Yeah, it's such an interesting problem right now because there are so many things that add up to this whole greater climate change issue and all of the large scale solutions seem so insurmountable to, you know, the everyday person. So any sort of progress we can make on this front of getting people more involved on those bigger sides of the issue seems like a really, really important topic to discuss. So I'm very excited to read it. My next question is about the latest IPCC report. And it said that, you know, it's too late to prevent climate change completely, but we still have time to prevent the worst. So how do you respond to people who insist that, you know, it's already too late to do anything? It's a strange idea that you would go directly from denial to despair without any stops along the way. And yet too many people have done that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to give up with any problem. It's hard to persist. But if you don't adopt a can-do attitude, we get nowhere with anything. One of the things we've tried to do in the book is point out the specific ways to get somewhere, the specific ways to proceed so that people have a sense of traction. If your only answer is to write to a senator, uh, you will write a lot of letters and then your fingers will go numb because you get no response. <laughs> but if instead you discover that there's a meeting held every two weeks in which the public is invited to sit down before actual decision makers and public utilities commission and make the argument, my kid has asthma when you run that dirty old power plant it's a much more tangible, more vernacular conversation 
when you uh, get into that kind of detail. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it seems like public discourse for a while was, you know, scientists were telling us, hey, this is what's happening. Here's how it's going to get worse. And you had a large group of people saying, no, no, that definitely can't be the case. And now all of a sudden we're, like you said, jumping straight to, well, there's nothing we can do about it anyway, so we might as well not. And yeah, m- making that leap, it seems to overlook a bunch of those really critical, important steps that at this point, a lot of us acknowledge we should be taking and we should be pursuing heavily. You know, there are, there, there are certain reinforcing behaviors, getting to know other people fighting the same fight, uh, getting heard, making some progress, even the way you choose to live, recycling or eating less meat. Um, there's a way to do it where it's not despair, but it's also not a complaining, bitter approach to the world. If you have some enthusiasms, <laughs> some strategy, mm-hmm. it gives you energy to take care of serious problems. If you shrug and hold up your arms, I mean, my gosh, where would we be if everybody did that? It's funny, the, the mindset shift is such a big part of it where I, I know that I've been trying to eat less meat over the past couple of years. And instead of looking at it as, oh, you know, I don't eat beef anymore and I eat less chicken, it's now you know, I learned how to make this really good dish that's all plant-based. And if you would have talked to me five years ago, I would have been shocked that I was making that. And now, I don't know, there's so many dishes like that that I'm just excited about. And it's that little enthusiasm and and mindset shift that's making all the difference. And I think that that story is not unique to just me. Yeah, one of the one of the themes in the that runs all the way through the book is uh, we really believe in sort of incremental progress. You know, I mean, too many people are are frozen by the idea that they have to make some giant leap. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not just talking about lifestyle here. So, you know, a lot of people find it hard to imagine going from a from a meat diet to a to a vegan diet, you know, but but, you know, you poll the American public and so you're trying to eat less meat and you get a very large percentage of the population saying, yes, they are trying to do that. And we believe in incremental progress mm-hmm. and we believe in incremental progress uh, when it comes to politics. Uh, you know, people, this seems like such a heavy lift to people. Like how am I, you know, what can I, one small person do to sort of get Congress to move on, uh, on climate change? Well, actually the truth is your city government has made promises about this issue too. And who's going down there holding them to account? Who's asking city hall, you know, whether they're living up to their commitment. So, it, it, it's yes, the overall problem is big, but in a way that just means we can all grab a little slice of it, right? I mean, that's how big it is. You know, take your mm-hmm. little piece of climate change and work on it. Uh, and that's what we're asking people to do is to, you know, get over this hurdle of it's a trap to think there's nothing you can do. That People have got to get past that trap. Yeah, and I guess there's two ways to look at it where this problem is so much bigger than me. How could I make a difference? So I'm going to do nothing versus this problem is so much bigger than me. We need everyone on board. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to pull in my friends, my family, and make sure that we're all on board. And that circle just keeps growing. So incremental progress, it adds up and it's a snowball effect where it makes a huge difference. You have a lot of people just not, I mean, we've got a a, a sort of a colossal failure of imagination here, you know, where people are not doing simple things. Um, I have a niece that I love dearly, who's in her twenties, who, um, you know, is very concerned about this problem. And I found out ahead of the last election, uh, she had never gone to uh, her grandmother, my mother, and said, Grandma, how are you voting? 
or, you know, I want you to, you know, young people are not asking their elders to put climate at the top of their list of voting issues. Uh, I, I, and, you know, probably rarely discuss politics with their elders, right? How many, how many grandparent votes can be moved uh, if every young person in America who's worried about this problem goes to grandma and says, I really want you to vote for X in the next election because that's the candidate that's talking about climate, right? You know, there's just so many mm -hmm. ways that people are frozen here that we need to get them unfrozen, right? So to get some of our listeners unfrozen, our listeners are always looking for ways to get involved. So what are some things that you two think that they can do either on a local level or even higher to get involved in changing policy and saving the environment? Here's an idea that would take a couple hours of homework and then uh, one or two slightly brave moments in meetings. Go find out what building code your county has or your state has. And chances are excellent, it's not a very good one because most of them in the United States are pretty crap. If you have a good building code, mm -hmm. you get good buildings and a good building uses very little energy and is also better for your health. So look at some of the organizations like the New Buildings Institute that has a really strong model code and go talk to your building inspector, the head of your building department and say, shouldn't this be our new code? Now you don't have to be a contractor to say those, th to say those things. This is a public official working in the public good. And it's perfectly legitimate to say, why is our building code not the best? Why are we 10 years behind? And as I say, that'll take a couple hours of homework. But imagine the impact if you get your building inspector to, and your building codes up to snuff so that every building built in your county or even your state is a green building. That's so much better than you know, changing light bulbs one house at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Matt, here's another example. Um, Millions of American school children are riding to school every day uh, in uh, diesel burning school buses. Uh, the particular emissions from diesel burning uh, vehicles are a major cause of asthma. Uh, and as you know, we have a, you know, an escalating trend of, of asthma cases in young people in America. We're just reaching mm -hmm. the point uh, where those dirty school buses can be replaced by electric school buses. Uh, this is already starting to happen. In, well, in Shenzhen, as Hal can tell you, a city in China, you know, they've already changed out the entire city bus fleet. So tens of thousands of buses now are, are fully electric. Uh, here in the United States, we've only had a handful of real commitments yet from school boards to make the change. The reason is the electric buses are more uh, expensive, but when you look at it over a long term with the operating costs, they actually wind up being uh, cheaper or potentially cheaper. So uh, why isn't every parent in America marching down to the school board saying, why do you still have my kid riding to school on a dirty diesel bus when you could be buying electric buses? When is your, when are you going to make that commitment? When will you make the promise to us to make the conversion? Uh, I mean, they're, they're just going to stumble along and not do it unless people make the demand. And, you know, what we're saying in the book is there are hundreds of examples like this where we need to place a political demand. And until we do, we will not get change. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And uh, yeah, mom, if you're listening, I expect you at the next school board uh, meeting talking about electric buses for my old high school district. There you go. <laughs> so my next question is, what does a clean energy economy look like to you two compared to what others might think of it as? Hmm. I, I guess the, 
concept to start with is what the Chinese call a circular economy. By that, they mean it's not a once through uh, of materials, say, or even people, but that continuously gets recycled. So you can imagine the rubble from an old bridge being used to uh, fill in a new bridge, for example, or more concretely and more in the vernacular, uh, you're recycling. You know, most aluminum in America is recycled aluminum now, by far the majority. In China, it's still freshly mined bauxite turned into aluminum. So with dramatic differences in the environmental footprint. So you have to begin to think about avoiding waste. And what, it, what this gets down to, and something I call uh, substituting materials with design. Really good design can dramatically cut the materials you need, whether it's for home construction or yogurt or anything in between. So that's what, what I think a part of it. Justin hinted at another part, which is one of my favorite topics. What are streets for? Are they only for cars or are you gonna allow pedestrians, bicyclists, kids on bicycles, pop-up restaurants and so forth? And one of the things I hope we learn from the pandemic is that the street can be much more useful than just a parking place and a speeding place for automobiles. So mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you really wanna build a clean energy future, you have to begin to recapture public spaces for all their benefits rather than just for one. I'll give you another answer to that question. My vision of the clean energy economy is that first and foremost, it's going to be hyper-efficient, right? Uh, people are really not conscious of how much we still waste. I mean, most of the buildings are still fairly bad uh, unless they were built quite recently. Uh, we haven't retrofitted them to the degree we should. Uh, many people don't understand that when you put gasoline in a car to go somewhere, uh, you, you think your, your motive is to, uh, uh, is to get from point A to point B, but the gasoline mostly fails to do that. 80% uh, of it, more or less, depending on the, the exact car you're in, uh, goes up as in the, into the air as waste heat, essentially. Uh, only about 20% of the gasoline gets turned into uh, energy that propels the car. Uh, and, you know, maybe 1% or less is, you know, energy that actually propels the driver of the car. So, uh, I mean, that's an embarrassment to be sitting in 2022 and, you know, we're thinking about all the oil we're drilling and mining in the world and 80% of it gets wasted as heat. Now, people, a lot of people don't understand that electric cars, one of the reasons they're so superior uh, to gasoline is that they're about twice as efficient. So, uh, you know, instead of wasting 80% of the energy, we're only wasting something like uh, half of it, maybe less than half. So, uh, you know, this future energy economy, we're going to presumably demand most of the same energy services we demand now. People are still going to want personal mobility. People are still going to want to fly on airplanes and go around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've got to do that much, much more efficiently. And then as we reduce the waste, uh, we have to clean up the balance of the, of the energy system. So, uh, I, a lot of people are excited about sort of wind and solar and the substitution that is uh, becoming possible and that we all, we all can sort of imagine now what it might look like. But along with that, we've got to be focused on making the whole thing much more efficient so that we're, mm -hmm. uh, we're just wasting less, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes total sense. Just to elaborate on this a little bit, 
about what 60 years ago, a river in Ohio caught on fire, the Cuyahoga River. And it's because we treated rivers and oceans as free open sewers where we could just dump in anything we want. Burning, catching rivers on fire helped us get beyond that and we passed the Clean Water Act. And it's been remarkably mm -hmm. successful. By no means perfect, but very good. But we're still using the atmosphere as a free and open sewer. We're still polluting it. And we're putting up pollutants that are going to live there a thousand years or more. And the atmosphere is a much thinner, much less mass intensive body than the waters of the United States or the waters of the world. So we are poisoning something we can't unpoison in any reasonable world. Um, we have to begin to think about the byproducts of our great production, the byproducts of our energy use as something that we, we, we can't simply spew all over the commons. It's, mm -hmm. it's irreversible uh, and it, it, it dramatically reduces the prospects for future generations. So something that I wanna ask both of you is, let me preface it by saying, environmental news can be extremely daunting for people who are very tapped into it and it gets tiring to keep up with a lot of the headlines and stories that people are reading. So how do you maintain your sense of hope and how do you not get burnt out? I just read Justin's brilliant work and it gets me going. <laughs> you must have a real answer to that question now. <laughs> I do, I do. Part of it is understanding what's possible and what's practical even. And so if you understand that building a solar home is as cheap and easy as building a non-solar home or that photovoltaic cells are cheaper than natural gas power plants, uh, then it becomes a question of getting over the political obstacles rather than having some fantastical machine out there that doesn't yet exist. Mm -hmm. So if you, see the, if you see the potential in these, in, with real world examples in these technologies, it gives you hope. There's another part of it too, though, which is once you engage, once you figure out how you're gonna make a difference in the political sphere, and you get, you know, the first couple of times it's awkward, but then you get better at it. It's really encouraging. And when you win a victory, you know, you, you've just lined up the energy for two more. Yeah, to give you an example, uh, Matt, I mean, people were sitting looking at solar panels, for example, 20, 25 years ago, understanding that as the market for them got bigger, the price kept coming down. And so, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the suggestion was made in the 90s, you know, if we could figure out a way to sort of really ramp this up, you know, that's going to drive the price down faster and it's going to become more affordable. So uh, people cobbled together a set of policies. Uh, Hal was one of the people doing this um, that helped both wind and solar to scale. And uh, those policies involved going state to state in the American states and getting, you know, initially very small targets for renewable energy uh, established in those states. And Lo and behold, once once we got the ball rolling and the and the markets began to scale up, the size of these uh, installations got larger and larger. Uh, we saw the price come down dramatically, and so that payoff has really only come in the last decade. I mean, uh, in that decade, the the cost of solar panels has come down by ninety percent. Uh, the cost of wind has come down by more than fifty percent. So. Uh, you know, the, the victories are out there to be had, but it does take, um, uh, it takes people going and making a political demand. And 
you know, we think it, we think those successes are the template that we need to follow, right? We've got to do this again and again and again with all the technologies and all the approaches that we need uh, to solve this problem. And, you know, I guess my take on your question is uh, if you're getting, getting up in the morning and sort of throwing yourself at it, uh, there, there's just no time for despair. I mean, uh, you know, the, this, the situation is too urgent for despair. Despair is a... Mm-hmm. Uh, self-indulgent uh, luxury in this situation. I mean, anybody who's just throwing up their hands in despair is part of the problem, not in any way part of the solution, if that makes sense. It, it totally does. And I think part of it is if you treat it as a list of actionable steps that we can take, any day that we spend just kind of wallowing in the bad side of what's going on, is a day that we're not spending getting involved in the solutions and that side of the process. So yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. Exactly right. You know, here's a quick recipe. Get yourself an electric bike and use it for your commute and for your shopping. Get one with little uh, pockets on the side for your kids' feet. (laughs) And then every time you ride a bike, you feel like you're doing something good because you are. But when you start riding a bike a lot, you're going to realize we need more than little white stripe to protect us from cars 4,000 pound cars going 50 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. We need some little barriers. So go get those barriers done. I know some people in uh, Baja, Mexico, who were so frustrated at their city's lack of building protected bike lanes, they went and they bought <laughs> a bunch of cement and they did a nighttime job and they put in a protected bike path. I'm not recommending that for everybody, <laughs> but it, it transformed that street, but it also transformed the politics in La Paz because people started riding bikes everywhere. Why not? Yeah. So, so, you know, riding a bike is a political statement. Making it safe for everybody to ride a bike is an even better political statement. I really like that. Um, and this is an audio podcast, so not everyone can see, but I have my, it's not electric, but I do have my bike uh, hanging up in the background. And yeah, I usually ride it to work in the morning and it's a one, nice little wake up. Two, it's good for my, my lungs and my legs. And three, I'm not contributing to uh, any sort of carbon emissions on the right end. So it's kind of a, a win-win-win there. Yeah, that's great. Make no mistake, this is a political battle, right? I mean, there's a, you know, an, an anti-bike backlash among car drivers all over the country, right? I mean, there's a lot of towns yeah. have been just pitched battles over, you know, bike lanes and protected bike lanes and taking out parking spaces and all that. So uh you know, we need everybody, even people who don't ride bikes, need to weigh in on the politics of this, right? In favor of, you know, what we call complete streets, in favor of streets that are that are, you know, that that are that work for everyone. Yeah, and you could expand that to really any sort of environmental or, or political topic. Expand to things that are going to benefit society, whether it's clean energy, whether it's better building codes, bike lanes. Find your avenue and go for it. Yep. All right, so we end every one of our interviews with three fun rapid-fire questions. You guys ready? Okay. All right, the first one, what is your favorite animal? Bear. Elephants. Mine is also an elephant, but we do love bears here too. <laughs> what is something that you do to be more sustainable at home in your own life? Ride my bike. <laughs> I am... I have not eaten beef in six weeks. Uh, I'm trying to cut my beef consumption down to 
three or four times a year. And I think I'm going to get there. Awesome. Well, hope, hope that works. And I hope, uh, hope when we talk to you next, you're going to say, you know what? It was only three. I did it. (laughs) All right. Last one. What is one environmental topic that you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? We can get this job done if we're a lot smarter about the political choices we make. And that requires, uh, uh, sorry, that requires educating oneself and then acting on it. It's not just a general uh, feeling of change that you are, is required. It's a precision intervention. And when you know when, where, and how to, pre- when you know when, where, and how to intervene, you can get things done. I'm going to sort of echo that and restate it. I think what I want people to come away with is the, the path here is not being a green consumer. Uh, that's fine. But uh, being a green consumer doesn't solve this problem. The path is becoming a green citizen. Uh, and that means that there, I mean, I know some people don't want to hear this because they find politics so demoralizing, but the path here is through politics, right? It is the only way to get this done. And, uh, you know, we've got to, uh, when Washington is paralyzed, as it so often is these days, we've got to focus on state and local level and try to get things done there. And when the windows open in Washington, we've got to focus there, but, there just is no other way. Uh, this is a huge collective action problem, and we need a collective politics to get it fixed. Awesome. So, Justin, Hal, thank you sure. both so much for your time. Okay. This was a lot of fun, and I'm definitely looking forward to reading The Big Fix. I'm sure some of the listeners are as well. Thank you, Matt. If people want to keep up with you or your work, where's the best place to do that? For myself, our website is energyinnovation.org. And there's a vast uh, breadth of materials there, really good stuff. And the best way for me would probably be to just follow my Twitter feed at Justin H. Gillis. And pretty much everything I write in the Times or elsewhere, uh, I post on that Twitter feed. And I also comment a lot on the news. So um, so that'd be a good good thing to follow. All right. So we will uh, post those links in the show notes. And while you're listening, go check out the website. Go give Justin a follow on Twitter. And uh, get involved in the political process. It's important. Thank you, Matt. All right, that will do it for today's episode of TPT. Thanks again to Hal and Justin for their time on this one. And please make sure to be on the lookout for their book, The Big Fix, when it hits bookstores. We'll be back on Friday for some quick hits. But until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norton. See you on Friday.